This is the Janet Killeen Books Podcast. I'm reading the second instalment of The Journeying Boy from my collection of short stories, There is a Season. Part 4 David found a place of contentment here, as the undemanding nature of her affection for him eased his isolation. The strong and exultant nature of the moors as he ran over the high tops and the bright rush of the streams stirred him. Here, potently, he sensed his journey quickening and the accompanying figure, sometimes striding, sometimes stumbling alongside him, But each time as he turned to see and identify him, at last, he would slip away. He prepared to return to school in the September of 1941 for the year of his matriculation examinations and expecting beyond a steady focus on the classics and modern languages that he knew to be his strength. As the train pulled out of Leeds and he waved to the receding figure of his aunt, he realised with a rush of affection how much she loved him and must have loved his father, and his separation from her hurt him as no other parting had before. It did not surprise him that this stab of recognition should bring very close the person of the boy whose journey he shared. Now again gazing through the railway carriage window as though again their trains ran in parallel lines. He watched with a sudden aching care, the face of the boy, thinner and tighter lined than he remembered, and the tense knuckles that showed white and grey as the boy gripped a bar or plank before him. And in the background, other figures, crowded, standing, jerking to the movement of the train. There was no sound, although lips moved and cries were uttered. He knew urgently that there must be a time to break through the translucency of this mirage and touch the boy, to step, if need be, from his own tangible reality to another's. He arrived exhausted. The familiarity of school, the reconnection with friends and masters, drifted by him, and for several days he could not regain his focus on study or music. Only on Saturday, when he was free in the afternoon, to seek the clear-skied spaciousness of the wolds, was he able to find again some kind of peace and order in his thoughts. Study and preparation, team practices, music, began to shape his days again, and he stepped gratefully into the routines and the demands they made on his concentration. But at night he stared hard-eyed at the windows and felt alone and increasingly afraid. Some nights bouts of shivering would overwhelm him and sleep elude him until the clock, striking the hours in the long corridor below, told him that one or two o'clock had passed. The term limped by. News came from abroad, the Nazi invasion of Russia, the devastating casualties of the convoys, and then, in December, a turning point sensed throughout the school. 
the Moscow offensive abandoned, the attack on Pearl Harbor that brought America into the war. David feverishly searched out his father's records from his trunk, wound up the gramophone in the fifth form study, and lowered the heavy head so that the needle bit hissing into the record. The triumph of the 1812 poured out through the window he flung open, flooding the quadrangle so that masters and boys paused to hear its defiance. He too was swept up in its exhilaration, its hope. And then the passion ended, and the spluttering needle ground into the centre of the turntable. The journey to Ilkley was cold, damp, protracted, and he was grey and shivering by the time he arrived on the bus. No, do not meet me, he'd written. I know my way and you're at work. She welcomed him, but with concern, suddenly aware that her nephew was in deeper distress than that of cold or hunger. Garnering her rationing points had meant that she was able to give him hot food, and she saw the bovril they shared later that evening bring some touch of colour into his face. Later, though, she looked in at his bedroom door to say good night, and caught the whiteness of his face, and then the shaking of his shoulders as he tried to turn away from her. Are you ready to sleep? she asked him. I thought I would go through your jumpers and see if I could darn them into some usefulness for next term. If I came and sat with you and worked by the bedside light, would that help, or do you want to be alone? Dumb, grateful, he nodded, and she brought sewing and sat with him. The rhythm of the darning, the inconsequential comment she made about her everyday life, the familiarity and safety of her presence soothed and calmed him. She watched the shaking subside, the hands relax, the eyes close. She stayed beside him that night, watching him as he struggled through waters that she could not fathom, greeting him quietly in the morning. The weekend enabled them to establish some kind of normality, and then the Christmas holiday was at hand for her to spend more time with him. Children came to the house in the evening for piano lessons, but then they would have supper together and listen to the wireless or play duets. She saw him draw a deep breath, as though safe from some unspoken dread, and settle again into the patterns of what had become home for him. Part 5 It was not until after Christmas that they spoke of that first night, and only then, because such horror had overwhelmed him, that she knew she must find a way to draw him up from drowning. They had gone to church together, both enjoying the ritual and resonance of words and music, the colour of glass, the ancient quietness of gathered worship. It was the gospel for the day, the familiar horror of Herod exceeding wrath. She turned to David, feeling instinctively the tremor that shook him as the story unfolded. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, in Rama there was a voice heard lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. 
she saw his hand shake and tighten on the pew in front of him, and unobtrusively leaned against his arm, so that he might sense, if nothing else, a nearness that might bring him some help. Somehow he stumbled through the service, and then she took him home. You need to tell me, she said. Something is troubling you so deeply that I cannot reach you. I think it would help you to talk. The terror of it belongs to the dark, and maybe less if you bring it into daylight. He looked at her, and she saw his eyes deeply undercut with grey shadows and his shivering hands. She waited. Have you ever felt as though you have someone walking alongside you all the time? he asked. As though you lived in two worlds at once, and the one we call real, full of everyday things and things we can touch and see, is less real, less powerful than the imaginary one, the one you can't touch. I read a poem once, she said, looking at him to make sure that he stayed connected that he knew she was answering him, not avoiding his question. Here we are all by day. At night we are hurled by dreams, each one, into a several world. I read that once long ago, and have never been able to forget it. She spoke very carefully. I think, yes, we live in a several world, and sometimes what is there in our imaginations or our dreams is more real, more true, more important than the everyday. He breathed as though with relief, and then slowly, hesitantly, began to tell her. Ever since I left London two years ago, he said, I have felt as though I have been accompanied by a boy about my age, travelling alongside me in the train, but not in my carriage, in a train of his own, looking out at me, but not through glass. At times he runs with me, when I go out on the hills and I hear his breathing, but never his voice. I sense sometimes that he is running away, panicking, out of breath. I was almost glad of his company at first, because I was going into the unknown, but now I feel a sense of horror as though he cannot escape someone, and as though I am part of him, part of his life. I see him sometimes crying out to me to help him. I can never hear his words. All I can do is keep looking for him, keep running alongside him. I do not know who he is. I do not know why this is happening to me. Today, in church, the words shook me. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. It happened to me before two years ago. All the little boys he killed in Bethlehem in his fury. He paused, letting the words sweep through them both with their ancient lamentation. David. She drew him back to the quiet room, the steady reality of the ticking clock the small fire she had lit in the hearth, the piano waiting to be opened and played again. David, do you know who you are? I mean, what our true identity is, you and your father, me, my father. I think it is important. Yes, he answered, and no, I never really understood why I never knew anything about the family and the family history. 
There was money and ambition, I think, and my schooling was very important, but I know nothing else. Your great-grandparents were Jews from Russia, she said, her eyes gazing at the dwindling fire. They left Russia in the 1860s to escape the pogroms. There were two brothers. I found a photograph of my grandparents in their old age and a few papers when I cleared out my father's house. They died in the 1880s, I think, long before I was born and never mentioned. One brother brought his wife to England and sought out the Jewish community in Leeds for shelter and for work. The other brother travelled as far as Holland and made a home in or near Rotterdam. Both brothers were skilled with leather and furs before they left Russia, and so your great-grandfather began by mending shoes and then making them. By the time your grandfather, my father, was born, the two families had lost all contact, and I think the horror and fear of those days of escape was so strong that when he was old enough, your grandfather broke all ties with the Jewish community and invented himself as an Englishman. He believed, I think, that if he did so, his family might never have to live in fear again. He left Leeds, changed his name, built up the business in Keithley, and then set up a branch in London, where your father took over. I think he was also ashamed of what he'd done, and shame made him more angry and more secretive. I do not know how much of this your father knew. What was the family name? Rubinstein, as far as the papers show, that would only be an approximation of the sound. But it was not difficult to reinvent that as Robinson. They were both very still. I think my father knew, he said gently. I remember him shouting up the stairs to my mother after an argument. I realise now she was saying, why did he need to go to war? And he shouted, it's the only thing I can do. We had already started to hear of the treatment of Jews in Germany, but it seemed far away and unreal to me. But I think he knew, and I think that is why he went. He volunteered as a territorial long before he would have been called up. And this boy, the boy who is accompanying you, who do you think this is? I think it is my distant cousin and I think he has been escaping ever since the invasion of Holland, running and hiding, and now he has been caught. The eyes of the boy in the train told me he was a prisoner. At first, it was as though this might happen sometime in the future, but now I believe it is happening, and he is on a train going into some dreadful place, some labour camp. That is what the rumours say, isn't it? His voice rose and shook. The train was not like a train for people, but for animals. And his eyes, I cannot even tell you how he looked. And the carriage behind him filled with shadows like himself. He was sobbing now, and she gathered him to her, and they both wept and rocked in the horror of their helplessness. I think if it were not for some strange accident of place and time, he would be myself, you and me, on a train like that, on a journey like that. Much later, and the afternoon had darkened into twilight before they were able to move. 
She got up unsteadily from where she had knelt on the floor beside him and moved to put on the kettle and make them tea. The house felt very still, as though it had gathered around them to hear and shelter them. They drank gratefully, silently. Much later again, she asked him, What will you do now? He understood her meaning, the acknowledgement that this sense of accompaniment and identity would not go away, at least until its full tragedy had been experienced, or hope had broken through. I will do the only thing I can do. Keep alive for him. Keep running with him. Keep looking for him on every journey. When the time comes, when the war is over, look for him wherever they have taken him. Part 6 David understood now that every month of the war's duration was a month of survival, and every returning glimpse of the boy's presence a faint hope that he had endured. News of the war crashed in on him with repeated waves of crisis and the impact of hardship and rationing. The universal greyness of life gave him a sense of participating a little in the unimaginable suffering of his kin. His own programme of studies, the rugby matches of the winter months, examinations in the early summer, the cross-country running, and his music lessons and performances all re-established a rhythm of life for him, in which he began to find purpose, and in that, strength and stability. He had shared his story and found meaning. He knew that his survival and that of his distant cousin were connected. In the sixth form, he took advanced studies in French and Latin as well as music, specifically equipping himself for the future, and sought out the languages master to request that he might learn German. One day it will be needed, he said. In September 1944, putting aside the planned place at Cambridge to read modern languages, he joined the army, moving on from the school cadet corps to officer training. Once sent overseas, in the early months of 1945, he found his language skills in demand, as the slow progress of invasion and emancipation moved through Western Europe ever closer to Germany. He served in Holland, asking always for news of his family, and learning then of the packed trains that took away thousands to labour camps from which they never returned. He wrote to his aunt, describing to her what he saw and heard. His regular letters to her and the sheer physical activity of each exhausting day helped him to keep the focus of his journey and his search, and only rarely was he shaken with nightmares. In spring he was with the Allied forces advancing into Germany and saw the pitiable state of the children, the terror of the women the lines of demoralised and shamed prisoners, the bombed horror of cities of great former beauty. And then word came of the liberation of Belsen and of Dachau in April, and he volunteered his interpretation skills in whatever ways could be of use to enable such broken bodies and minds to be repaired, rehabilitated, repatriated. He saw, heading into these factories of death, 
the parallel lines of railway tracks that had haunted him for six years. He would ask, in the rough adaptation of German that he'd learned to make himself understood in Holland, does anyone know of the family Rubinstein from Rotterdam again and again? In the evenings he would play the piano, and wraiths would gather to hear him play Chopin and Bach, Gershwin and Mendelssohn, or Beethoven and Mozart sonatas. Some touch of his eclectic choice would move them to laughter or tears, and their humanity would clothe them again. The family Rubinstein from Rotterdam, he asked each time. Yes, said a voice one evening, after a new transport of refugees had come from the east. I knew them. Who are you asking for them? The clothes hung loose on the shaking scaffold of the body, the head shaved to a gaunt skull, the eyes dark and still were unforgettable. Holding his own across the group gathered around the piano. Familiar. Family. Kin. You have been listening to the second instalment of The Journeying Boy from my collection of short stories, There Is a Season. Read by the author, Janet Killeen, and produced by Duncan P.B. For more stories, please subscribe on iTunes or from wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>